Let's pray. Father, we're approaching your word now, so we ask you to teach us through the Holy Spirit the great truths that John has written here by your inspiration, and we just uh, thank you. We give you glory and praise for clarity of the word of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, well, we've been exploring some deep and wonderful themes in 1 John chapter 1, and now we are going to go deeper. There are really big issues at stake. I'm mean, actually the biggest issues. It's just, it's just one short chapter. Really important questions have been addressed already in very helpful ways. Who is Jesus? What is God like? What is a real Christian? And what is a real Christian's relationship with sin? We've already talked about those things. John started with Christ in verse 1. He's called the Word of Life, who was manifested as a real man on earth and could be heard and seen and beheld and touched. And he was with the Father and was manifested in the world, John says, into the world we know. Why did he do that? So that, there's a purpose clause in verse 3, so that, He's called the word of life who was manifested. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped back. It's telling you the reason that he came here. That's why it's a purpose clause. The reason he was manifested is so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So that's describing salvation, being restored to God in a relationship with God. You know, when you come to Christ, you're actually in fellowship with the creator of the world. Don't forget that. That's pretty wonderful. And he's telling us all about that. So he's writing in verse 4, another purpose clause, so that, so that they could have an unshakable joy in salvation. He writes, so that our joy may be made complete. So now we know why he's writing. He's, he goes directly into a clear, unambiguous statement about God's nature in verse 5. So we're kind of reviewing here, right? What is God like? Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So God is absolutely holy. He's pure goodness. The angels, Isaiah tells us, are around God's throne singing what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So God is untainted by anything, and that is the foundation for all that's true about him. And because of this foundation, anyone who has fellowship with God, him being light and in him there is no darkness at all, anybody who is saved by Christ is going to walk in the light. That's what his message is. And because, uh, well, look at verse 6 right there. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So in some meaningful way, our relationship with Christ is going to be seen in how we conduct ourselves and how we live. But as we said last time, John confirms that we can't really claim any level of sinlessness in this life, right? Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we can't pretend we are sinless. I know some people do, but we can't pretend we are, we are sinless. There's wonderful news here. Verse 9, God is ready to forgive his people. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, interestingly, some people don't like that. They don't like that idea. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In fact, religions and sort of quasi-Christian religions that oppose the gospel as it appears in the Bible, some cults that exist today, often see that as kind of a problem that God forgives when we confess our sins. They don't like, they don't like ready forgiveness. They don't like forgiveness to come so freely from God. They think it makes people lazy, right? You ever heard people talk like that? Well, if you're just going to be forgiven, then you're just going to go sin and do anything you want. It's too easy. And they say churches shouldn't teach ready forgiveness on God's part. People will take advantage of that forgiveness and they're going to continue in sin. And people will do what they want and confess their sins and go on their merry way and keep sinning. They're going to sin even more. In fact, that was, that was the Roman Catholic criticism of the Protestant Reformation. If you say we're saved by grace through faith alone, that's a scary thought to some people because they think, well, then you'll just go do whatever you want. Is that true? And, and if it's not true, why isn't it true? That's kind of what we're going to address today. It's actually, I think it was Roman Catholic theology that inclined people to sin more. Um, because if they're not born again, and if they believe a good work or a prayer or making a donation to the church is going to bring them forgiveness, they're, they're really wrong. They're, that's really messed up. John is not teaching easy forgiveness at all. That's why he clearly describes true Christians as those walking in the light as he is in the light. That's what Christians do. We enter his light by faith and then we're living in his light. And that's leading us and guiding us all the way. It's his light we are walking in. And he paid a very great price to bring us into that light. It wasn't easy. He took the great burden to make it possible for us. It's a very costly light. And if we walk in the same light as his light, with righteousness and integrity and holiness and love, then we will truly be in fellowship with our Father in heaven and with Christ and with his people. And his blood will cleanse us from all sin. How much sin? All sin. Amen. Thank you for listening. <laughs> We really have not been glorified, uh, you know. I'm trying to see if there's any glorified people in here. Nope, not today. We had one last week, but they left. We were too sinful. No, I'm just kidding about that. We, we still sin according to what the Apostle Paul calls the flesh. Our flesh still wants to sin. Still wants to be gratified. And don't think of flesh as just bodily appetites or bodily cravings. It's much deeper. It's much deeper reality than that. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, the sins of the flesh include those kinds of things, bodily things, sexual immorality, drunkenness, getting high and things like that. But he also lists in that list idolatry, envy, outbursts of anger, all kinds of sin I don't think we can associate with mere bodily desires. In fact, idolatry and envy and anger where do those things come from? Is that a bodily craving? It's, it's, th those things come from deep desires of the heart. That's where those things are from. So the flesh is probably best described as all the sins that are common to fallen men. Those are all aspects of the, what Paul would call the flesh. Sins are anything contrary to God's holy nature, whether they be some you know, physical desire or impulse or 
the darkness in our heart. Jesus said all sin comes out of the heart. So there's still sin in there. All kinds of things are sins of the flesh. So the flesh is probably best described, like I said, as the common sins of all kinds. So innocent pleasures can be sin. You know, baseball can be a sin. If you love baseball more than God, that's a sin, right? So any, any wonderful thing that's, that's innocent in that sense, you, if you put it before God, that's a form of idolatry and that's a sin in itself. So idolatry isn't just worshiping gods and gods of wood and gods of stone and things like that. You know, I think, I think looking back on my life and I've lived a long time, I think I've never been tempted to worship a god of stone or wood. I don't think I've ever done that. I've always sort of had some level of respect even before I was a Christian for the God of the Bible. I mean, that was sort of who God was supposed to be as far as I knew. But have I put things ahead of God? Yes, I've certainly done that. And I think for modern people, the thing we're taught to idolize by our culture is ourselves. Whatever our desires are is good. That's what our culture says. Our culture encourages us constantly to worship ourselves. So we are to walk in the light of Christ. What, what makes Jesus special to people, even unbelievers? What makes him so special? What makes him so very good that people admire him? Jesus did not live for himself. He did exactly the opposite of that. Jesus consistently and unfailingly lived for God, his Father. He served the Father. He said, I came to, he said, my food is to do the will of my Father. So as much as you might like to eat or get hungry, his yearnings, his cravings were to do the will of the Father. That's what made him special. None of us can do that consistently and unfailingly. And we won't until we're glorified. So I don't, think of Jesus in terms of what he didn't do. I actually don't think that's what strikes people about his goodness. Yeah, it's true. He didn't get plastered. He didn't chase girls. He didn't lie. He didn't ever do anything like that. But mainly he impresses us because he always puts others before himself. God first, of course, and then other people before himself. So Jesus' goodness, it's not just what he refrained from doing. It's a positive goodness. And that's why people love him and admire him. What did he say? Do unto others as I would, as I, as I have done unto you. So he actually lived that. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. So serving the Father and other people was just, that's Jesus. But we really struggle with that, don't we? We struggle to be very, very good in that same way. It's a challenge. Our compassion falters. And a true Christian, we, we know we should be like Jesus. If that's what it's all about, we're walking in his light as he is light. We know that's what we're doing, but we also know that we fail. We put ourselves and our desires above him, and we put ourselves and our desires above other people sometimes. We do it too often, probably. Sometimes we don't want to be bothered with other people's needs, so we kind of grumble about doing that. So the idolatry of self, we haven't fully conquered that. Even if we really love Jesus and worship him from our heart, we still haven't fully conquered that kind of sin. Sinlessness eludes us because we still place other things ahead of God. Now in heaven, we're going to be cured of that. 
So heaven will be heaven. You won't spoil it. You're going to be changed. You're going to be fixed when we get there. I think in part because we're going to see the Lord face to face and that will surpass all other pleasures so dramatically that there won't even be an inclination. I think it's more than that. But Psalm 1611 it says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So God is the ultimate source of pleasure and when we get there the, 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 the pleasures of being in his presence and being with him will be so high, so much above anything that's tantalizing to us down here or that fills our heart that we will just be perfected. The fullness of joy and the presence of God that he talks about in the psalm, it won't fade, it won't grow dim, it won't end. First John, actually John tells us in chapter 3 verse 2 of this, this little letter we're looking at, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So seeing him has this incredible sanctifying effect on us. So our future sinless condition is secure, but we have to deal with our sinful tendencies now, right? Anybody here not doing that? <laughs> you all agree? It just seems daunting. It's daunting because our flesh is there and it always wants to come back and get our, direct our interest somewhere else to something, put something else more important than the Lord. For some people it's actually very frightening um, to fight our own sin. But if you're a Christian, and I don't mean just having the name Christian, yeah I'm a Christian, uh, I mean if you are in Christ, if you are his child, you are not perfect, but you have changed. Something dramatic has happened inside of you. If you're a true Christian, something has changed on the inside. Wonderful things. Paul says God is at work in you. So first we are new creations. You guys know 2 Corinthians 5, 17? It says, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We're not the same beings. We're new. We've been renewed. A profound awakening has taken place by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're not the same. And this is called regeneration. The, the simple term for regeneration is the new birth. which means the same thing. The new birth gives us a whole new outlook on everything. The new birth is a gift of God. It's something the Holy Spirit does in us. We have a whole new outlook on God, on ourselves and our place in the world, morality, the world around us and how we should think about it, our very purpose for existence. The new birth gives us all of that, everything. It's incredible. A whole new outlook. And with this new birth comes another act of God in which Well, he promised to Israel way back through the prophet Jeremiah something uniquely special. So this is another way, this is another aspect of this change in us. You know, Israel, they just wouldn't stop sinning. I mean, they were horrible. Horrible for hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, just awful. So God promised a new covenant. A new covenant. The old covenant was based on God's law, written on stone by God himself. The new covenant is God's law written on our hearts, right? By the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 31, 33 is the promise. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them 
and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. He's promising a grand internal transformation. That's what it means that God's law is written on the heart. It means new life is given to us, a new awareness and a new heart that loves God, that values his moral laws. We understand their worth. We embrace them as our own. What he says is right, we say is right. What he says is wrong, we say is wrong. We agree that his law is the best thing for us. And the Apostle Paul, he called, called God's law holy, righteous, and good. And so we affirm that it's holy, righteous, and good. So when the law is written on our heart, we agree with all that Paul said about it. Now, there's one other thing I want to talk about. So first, we're new creations. We're transformed, born again. Second, the law is written on our hearts by the Spirit of God. And third, that same Spirit takes up permanent residence inside of us. The Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of believers. So when we, who are twice born, new creation, Spirit indwelt, when we believers, with all of that going for us, when we sin, when we sin, the Spirit of God within us reminds us that we are dishonoring God. He brings conviction to us. He warns us that we're stepping off the narrow path. So we experience a, a healthy guilt for violating God's moral law. It's healthy because we really do want to be like Jesus. We're not rebels against him. We really do want to be like him. There's just this one little hitch in the whole situation for people who are only born once, not born again, it's a very different thing. So these are people who might be religious, but they're, they're not a new creation. They do not have the Spirit. And we're going to see in weeks to come, because John's letter repeatedly addresses those who might be present in the church or claiming to be following Christian Christ, but are not, they don't really belong to God. They're not true Christians. So being religious is not the same as being reconciled to God. So throughout John's letter, he's going to offer us all sorts of ways to measure ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. But let me come back first for a second to this accusation of people that don't like the gospel because it's too easy, where they say that promising forgiveness by simple faith and confession actually encourages sin. It does not do that. It most certainly doesn't do that. Not for a born-again spirit indwelt new creature. Not for us. The promise of forgiveness doesn't encourage sin. It does exactly the opposite. Why do we say that? Because we're new. We're changed. This new life we have by God's gracious gift, you know what it does? It softens our heart towards God and the things of God. Our love for Christ, our love for this wonderful Savior, the very fact of the grace and the mercy of Jesus towards us, his great love for us, that reality moves us to reject whatever displeases him. So when we find out that we're sinning and we realize that we're sinning and we know we're blowing it, we do something about it. It grieves us that we've hurt him and his cause. So the redemptive work of God in us and the incredible love of Jesus gives us a desire to say no to wickedness. Are we perfect? No. Are we sinless? No. But we are not happy offending God and grieving his spirit. So, now we're coming up to today's text. 
Aren't you done yet? It's almost, no. We're going to just spend a little time here, then we're going to move forward next week. Two weeks. So, in the second chapter of John, 1 John, verse 1, which flows right out of chapter 1, John tells us that he's not writing so that we would ever take sin lightly. He's specifically not encouraging us to do that. But he's writing so that the comfort of the gospel itself will be one of the tools that we can employ to turn away from sin when it does arise within us. So verse 1 of chapter 2, my little children. It's so cute that he calls people little children. <laughs> he's an old man and he's shepherded these people for many decades. Oh, that sounds like somebody I know. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Do you get that? I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, here's the dangerous part, if anyone sins we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So nothing he says here in any way diminishes sin or makes light of sin or treats sin as no big deal. It's not making sin smaller. What he's doing is magnifying God's incredible love and bringing us such a wonderful Savior. That's what he's doing. And when we latch on to that gracious Christ, Jesus who forgives sin, it softens our heart towards him and encourages us to reject sin. We have an advocate, an advocate, somebody to come alongside of us and speak for us before the Father. The word advocate is pretty interesting. It, it's um, parakletos, which is exactly the word paraclete. It's the same word that Jesus used of the Holy Spirit. We often call him the paraclete, but actually Christ is here called the paraclete as well. And the word just means somebody that's going to come alongside or speak for on behalf of another person, represent them or be there for them. So Christ is our comforter who stands alongside us when we sin and speaks for us. That's our, that is a great encouragement to be faithful, not to be unfaithful. God's love and the provision that God has made for forgiveness is not taken away or diminished by sin. It's, it's, it's because we're new creatures and we love him. It, it magnifies our desire to rid ourselves of sin. God knows human weaknesses. He knows all about us. He knows all the failings we have. He knows Satan really well. He knows all of Satan's wiles. He knows how wicked the world is all around us and the corruption of our own flesh. He knows all of that. And he's not waiting for us to slip so he can smack us down. That's not how God thinks about us. What he wants when we sin is for us to confess and repent and apply ourselves to making progress in holy living. That's what he wants. So if we feel condemned and rejected, we can apply ourselves to the advocate, Jesus. And he will speak for us. He will be there for us. He is our comforter. Jesus stands with us, not only as a spokesman, but he's the very person that paid the penalty for the sins that we're committing. The very same person is speaking up for us. So look how verse 1 of chapter 2 flows into verse 2. And uh, look, at, look at the middle of verse 1 again where it says, If anyone sins, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Now that's a big word we don't use every day. Anybody say propitiation yesterday? <laughs> 
propitiation basically means to soften somebody's anger. I mean, that's kind of the way it's used in a general sense. To reconcile somebody's ill feelings towards us. I often think of Jacob sending all those presents to Esau before they met, you know, after all these years and to, to soften him, you know, so when they finally got together, he'd be a little nicer than what he thought. It's, it's sort of that idea. We're, we're doing that. Now, some English Bibles don't use the word propitiation anymore, so yours might not if you have a, some translations. Some will say something like atoning sacrifice or expiation, which isn't a word anybody uses either. Um, but the, but they feel they have to do that because when we think about religion and propitiation, we think about sometimes the way pagans placate their gods with gifts and things like that. Bring them food or bring them treasures or, you know, uh, if, you, if you've ever been to uh, Greece, you can actually see those places where they, they bring things or in other cultures, they still do that, all that stuff now. But uh, just amazing amount of treasure and things. They would bring the gods to get their favor and things like that. Propitiating the gods so that they won't be angry. Or, or the, the, the spirits of your ancestors. We've got to keep them happy so they don't get mischievous with us and mess with us. You know, those kind of things. Those animistic people do that and all of that. But that's not what it means in the Bible. Because God is not like their gods. The real God is totally different. The living God, our creator, is not arbitrary in his anger. He's not like pagan gods. We've already seen it. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That's the real God. And that's the issue. He's holy. He is holy. So God is pure, and because he's pure, he does hate sin. He hates all evil. His holiness looks at sin and humans as worthy of death. That's true. So God does need to be appeased in that sense. It's not that he's moody or grumpy or mischievous or doesn't like people. It's not like that at all. Though pagan deities are depicted that way. God is holy and we are sinners and his hatred of sin is right and just or he wouldn't be good if he wasn't against sin. And what we see here is not that we must placate him. Pay attention. It's not that we must placate him, that we must, but he's already placated himself. He has already solved the issue with our sin himself. His own wrath against sin has been taken away by the sacrifice of Christ. He propitiates himself through the son that he sent into the world. He bore all the penalty of our sin. That is wonderful and unique. So God's not all conflicted about sin. He knew our problem and he solved our problem himself. That's what the wonder of the gospel is. But because he's good, he just has to make sure that his justice is honored. And we can't honor it because we're not good enough. So he sent Jesus into the world to become man, to represent mankind, to satisfy his justice by means of a sacrifice. And that means the one who speaks for us, the advocate that we have before the Father, is our righteous Savior who actually paid for our sins by his own suffering. He took the weight of God's condemnation on sin unto himself. So if the law of God condemns us, he says, our advocate, he says with full authority that debt has been paid. 
that debt has been paid. John already told us in chapter 1 verse 7, the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now the son did not do that in opposition to the father. He does not even have to persuade the father. He was sent by the father to achieve this salvation. So he is propitiating the justice of God, but it's not like God is hesitant. He delights in what his son did for us. He delights to save us through his son. So I must say once again, the fact that he did that makes a believer hate his own sin, not want to sin more. What Jesus did for us is a gift of such precious, infinite value that it will produce in us ultimately infinite joy. But even the joy we have now in it tells us to fight our sin and encourage, and we want to. It rises up in our hearts. We've got to fight our sin. We've got to walk in the light. We've got to honor him for all that he's done for us. So we should embrace the word propitiation. It's really one of the greatest words associated with the gospel of Christ. It only appears about three times in the New Testament, but they're all in very significant places. It's one of the greatest words. It's a beautiful word when used of God's work of redemption. So John writes this letter, why? So that we may not sin. And by telling us of God's great gift, he reminds the redeemed soul, the born-again man or woman, just how ungrateful and tawdry sin really is in the light of God's love. And knowing that, we don't want to do it anymore. We want to fight it. And when we slip, we want to make it right. So if you are in Christ, you will fight sin in spite of yourself. You'll despise your own sin. Okay, there's one final line in chapter 2, verse 2, that we haven't discussed. It is a key phrase in a sometimes heated theological discussion among believers who love the Bible. Verse 2 says, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, but John doesn't stop there. He adds, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Wow. Those wonderful words should not be controversial. But they are. <laughs> so in two weeks, um, I'll try to sh shed some light on those words, hopefully with a lot of light and almost no heat. Okay? <laughs> Let's pray. Our great Father, we appreciate you so. You love us so. You had John write these things so that we may not sin. You have given us incredible resources to overcome our sinful tendencies, but we do fail sometimes. So keep us mindful of our weaknesses and prompt us to quickly confess our sins. Remind us to walk in the light. And we look forward to that day when sin will no longer plague us. Thank you for a salvation that is freely given through Christ and his atoning blood. In his name we pray, amen.